0: Shall I read something from it. it, it seems appropriate.
1: Hello, you're listening to The Lodgers, Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined, as always, by Kate Rennebaum. Hello. And this week we are joined by Sarah Ann Swain. Hi. Wonderful. So- Hi,
2: Sarah. <laughs> Happy to be here. <laughs> Yay!
1: This week, uh, we are here to talk about episodes three and four of season two. Uh, that is to say, uh, The Man Behind the Glass and Laura's Secret Diary. Um, now, I don't want to get too much into like speculation for season three stuff, but I, I think it- it's worthy of mentioning that uh, some cast pictures... Went up this week, yes. courtesy of Entertainment Weekly, and they were very difficult to avoid. Did everyone did everyone see those?
3: I did. Did you see them, Sarah? Uh, I tried to, but then I <laughs> then I. <laughs> well, that's good. That's you had really restrained. Good. That's that's impressive.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, so I won't spoil anyone for anyone who's staying unspoiled, uh, like yourself, Sarah. But I will say uh, it 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 brought some feelings about life, about aging. <laughs> Time (laughs) decay. It's March. uh, You know, many many feelings.
3: For me, it brought feelings about uh, one's uh, hope that the there is like a stark difference between Entertainment Weekly's uh, photographic uh, sensibility from Lynch's photographic (laughs) sensibility. This this set those these photos were. Uh, I don't know. Done up very much in a way that, that to me, for me, has very little to do with any kind of like aesthetic of of what the show has looked like and presumably will look like. Um, it felt very much sort of like a weird advertisement or something that was being done by somebody that wasn't <laughs> Lynch or anybody really creatively that involved with the show. Um, so I think that that unfortunately kind of added to this sort of odd effect of these photos, but. Anyway, I don't know. It was also, I personally, the one I kind of liked the most actually was Duchovny. He done up as Denise, who's a character we haven't seen yet. But that was maybe just because that one was a, you, you actually was quite, quite far back. So you got more of the, his body rather than just a sort of like awkward half uh, close-up shot. Anyway, so yeah, I don't know. I those I had mixed feelings about those photos, clearly.
2: They're not from the set, though, right? Their Entertainment Weekly got them to kind of like model for these? Yeah, okay.
3: yeah. Yes, okay. It's It's basically like a Last
1: Supper theme. Uh right. there's pie involved. The um I-, I will say that the most interesting aspect for me was actually reading fans' rapid speculation based solely on these <laughs> photos of, of care of, of of you know these actors dressed up in character based on what they were wearing, how they were posed in relation to each other, uh jewelry, mm. things like that. It was <laughs> and even some of them were admitting, you know, we're reading far too much into these, but <laughs> it's just people are so well- starved.
3: There was some interesting, I mean, uh, certainly, uh, what's his name, our favorite, the guy who gets a mention every week for his performance, uh, James, James Hurley, uh, J- uh, James Marshall there. He certainly stands out, like he looks quite noticeably different now, yes. so that there was there's some interest there, I guess. Um, it's uh, It was also interesting, too, like Shelly and Norma, these characters who, in the original run... There is such a stark seeming age difference between them. But clearly that just sort of points out the fact that television makes, um, you know, women, like I'm sure uh, Peggy Lipton, who played Norma, I'm sure she was like 32 when, you know, they first filmed Twin Peaks and she's meant to be this like old woman. And now when you see the, the Norma and Shelley next to each other, the actresses are clearly like basically the same age, which is kind of funny. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see what those photos bear going forward.
1: I think Peggy Lipton may just be one of those people that like freakishly doesn't age, uh, but I, yes, I maybe that is, is, that.
3: that is possible too. Yeah, she's seventy now, by the way.
1: <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, normally, oh, actually, before we get into the proceedings, I I always forget to do this at the top, and then I end up end up doing it at the end, which is when everyone's tuned out and asleep already. Uh, So I just wanted to say now, uh, once again, thanks to everyone who's already uh, reviewed the show and rated us on iTunes and elsewhere. Uh, We really appreciate everyone's feedback. So please uh, rate, review, subscribe, do all the nice things that take very little time to do. And uh, yeah, it helps with visibility, helps people uh, see and hear us. And uh, I've I've noticed that when I Google iTunes lodgers, we're now like the second result, which is a good sign. Hooray. That is a good sign. That yeah, a good sign. Some band comes first, whatever. Anyway, so yes, again, thanks to everyone who already has chimed in, and we can always use more. Now, to get into the proceedings uh, proper, Sarah, we're going to ask the same question of you that we do of, of all our guests, which is, uh, how did you get into this Twin Peaks business?
2: Um, I was very late to the game. I discovered Lynch in my early 20s. I think Mulholland Drive was the first thing, I, no, I know Mulholland Drive was the first thing I saw because it changed my life (laughs) and it changed how I thought about movies and what they could do. Um, and I wanted to, and I sought out his other works, but Twin Peaks wasn't available at any of the video stores where I was. And so, yeah, by the time I picked it up, yeah, it was was a good few years later, but I still haven't seen it in like 15 years. Like I've only watched it once through that's it. Mm -hmm. So it's been really fun to kind of like come back and rediscover it and like, yeah, fall back into the uh, the dream world of Lynch after all of these years. Because I haven't, yeah, I haven't done it since, yeah, seeing Inland Empire, which was quite a while ago now as well.
1: What are your feelings on Inland Empire? I know that one divides people.
2: Again, like I haven't seen it since I saw it that one time in the theater. Um, and I'd like to go back and, and watch it again. Because I, yeah, I did not like it when I watched
0: it.
2: Uh, <laughs> I also, you know, I didn't like Wild at Heart either. I didn't like a lot. You know, I don't like a lot of it. But then I come back and then I love it. So it mm-hmm. it, it takes a long time to, to be receptive to Lynch, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a kind of like relearning how to, yeah, accept Lynch as your savior.
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. Have you accepted Lynch as your own personal savior? Um, yes, I think that is really good advice, particularly for people who saw Inland Empire and didn't like it go back and watch it again and then watch it again and <laughs> watch it again until you like it that is good advice <laughs> that is right. very very good advice because
1: until because you like it correct. you are incorrect <laughs> <laughs>
3: Exactly. we will win you to our side of this yeah. argument Just keep yeah. watching
1: it. so as i mentioned the two episodes we're talking about this week are the man behind the glass which is directed by leslie linka gladder who as we previously mentioned has an incredible television resume and written by robert engels uh, the second episode is Laura's Secret Diary, directed by Todd the Wizard Holland. Uh, that's the that's the Fred Savage wizard. If you uh, don't know what movie I'm talking about, and written by and this is a mouthful, Mark Frost, Harley Peyton, Robert Engels, and Jerry Stahl. This is his only Twin Peaks credit. He's best known for the memoir Permanent Midnight, which was of course made into a film with Ben Stiller. But he's actually got quite a few TV credits, including a bunch of episodes of the, of Mark Marin series. So uh. Bit of a weird career there. We're going to try to roughly go in order, so let's start with uh, the man behind the glass, uh, which of course introduces us to Harold Smith, and uh, also gives us—I mean—the ultimate, the ultimate Albert moment. But we'll talk about that shortly. I assume I have—I de- definitely have more notes on uh, on the- on this first episode than the second. Of course, we can't not mention the arrival of Michael Parks and his accent. <laughs>
3: Indeed. I kind of just realized today, like doing some reading, that I, like, you know, I knew he always had sort of looked familiar, but I didn't realize he had quite such a kind of, um, like, he's like a sort of a cult kind of figure almost, right? Like, he's an action sort of star or something from the, what, 70s? 70s? Is that what his, his yeah, like he's first, got yeah.
1: definitely some cult, uh, action, grindhouse cachet in, like, the, the in, like, Tarantino y circles.
3: Yeah, we haven't even, we, I've been meaning to kind of bring this up for ages, and I keep forgetting, but basically, just sort of one of the, the other elements of the show is the fact that there is such a kind of considered use of a certain sort of television actor here. Like, the, like there are movie actors, but they're almost the minority. It's really people like um, Michael Ankin and Peggy Lipton, and uh, I'm going to forget who else. Uh, yeah, the um, Piper Laurie, as as these people who are sort of like connected to a kind of previous sort of uh, mode of television. The uh, Michael Ankin had been on a. Sh- oh i'm gonna forget what the name of his show is um but uh peggy lipton had been on the mod squad and i mean there is sort of like a clear reference here to yeah television's history even just in the casting of these people um anyway yes
1: uh so where did we want to start with these episodes i thought maybe a character we haven't really talked about a lot but features heavily in both of these episodes is lucy so i was wondering if if anyone had some lucy thoughts how, how she's used in these episodes
3: I don't know. (laughs) What do you think, Sarah? Uh,
2: Well, her lipstick, for one. Uh, I think she was very much upstaged by by her bright orange lipstick.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Lucy's sweaters and the lipstick. They are competing for visual attention with her as a presence all the time. I I feel like I I still... It's hard for me to wrap my head around the Lucy storyline here at the beginning. Because I think... um, I don't know. I mean, it's complicated. Like this idea of her of her being pregnant, being given such weight. I think is is interesting. Like the fact that it's given so much narrative time. This sort of idea of it. Uh, you know, her her indecision between these two men. And I mean, there's something to that idea of of. Twin Peaks again referencing maybe sort of some of the tropes of the soap opera for sure but I think there's also that level of a kind of empathy or something that's given to everybody's problems equally like this idea that Lucy um, is pregnant and doesn't really know what to do about it and and can't really make sense of her life is, is sort of given equal weight to... I don't know, Leland being arrested or something, you know, like, like the, the way that the show kind of flattens everything out. I sort of want to appreciate that. But at the same time, Dick Tremaine is like one of my most hated characters, and I am not happy to see him show up. So it's it's hard to be on board with that. I don't know. What, what do other people think?
2: Um, I, I can't remember if it's in actually this episode or the next episode, but you know, where we're Coop tries to, yeah, intervene and kind of get get Lucy to talk about what's going on and what do you want, and she's, yeah, it's the way her desires are really confused by, yeah, what what she actually wants but what she should want, you know, like her troubles with Andy are about, I don't know, that he doesn't exercise and do these kinds of things, and uh, Dick Tremaine was different, you know, and he likes Argyle socks, he even knows what Argyle socks are, Um, you know, and he's just so smarmy and so like put together and, you know, keeping up a certain kind of ideal, um, that she, yeah, confuses for maybe something she should want or something that she needs.
3: Yeah. I, I always thought that was kind of interesting. The fact that, that, um, maybe the choices that she's making are, yes, clearly based on a certain kind of, um, Maybe emerging ideal in the, in the nineties of this sort of commercialized package of what, of what particularly men should look like, right? The idea of a kind of like emerging sort of masculinity that ten years later would be you know, goofily named as the... Um,
1: metrosexual?
3: Is, metrosexual there, like that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I mean, like this idea that that she clearly... Like she even says at one point, well, I decided to break up with Andy after I saw a TV show that told me I needed some me time. The show is sort of pointing out that maybe idea and that way of thinking and, and, and not... I don't know, as an issue, certainly, because it's causing Lucy agony. But at the same time, it doesn't. It, the show doesn't get there through making fun of Lucy, which I like, right? Like, it, it doesn't come at the expense of her. I mean, I don't think we're supposed to believe that Lucy is, the, is maybe the smartest woman who's ever lived. But it also doesn't look down at her at all, which, again, I, I do appreciate. I think it's sort of one of the better impulses of the show.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with that. I do think that there is occasionally a note of condescension
3: Oh, you think? Uh
1: yeah, yeah. Uh in terms of other characters interaction with her, but it's 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 a light touch of condescension. And I mean, I do appreciate that in the middle of like what are some very dark episodes for Cooper in terms of him having to deal with with Leland and and just generally not having a very good time, I appreciate that he that they have him take the time to say like, "Okay, Lucy, what's going on? I'm a person you can talk to. Let's talk about it." It doesn't go very well. But I, well
3: that's, that's a great joke too, right. This idea that Cooper who has been able to intuit every <laughs> inner emotional state of everybody in the whole show and then Lucy confounds him like he can't <laughs> hide. Like that's True. a great payoff of that. I love that. Yeah I, yeah, I don't know Lucy. I mean Lucy and Andy are uh, it's hard not to root for Lucy and Andy, right? I mean even you, you just you want them to get together.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, another character I wanted to sort of spotlight. Or specifically, an actor I wanted to spotlight who we haven't got to talk about, and of course, I have to assume their involvement in the future will be limited. Is uh, Warren Frost as Doc Hayward, who gets a lot to do in these episodes, and I think has sort of been a quietly underrated presence. One of the very few characters who never has a dialed-up moment. He's pretty low-key throughout, and he's he ne- you know he never gets like his own plotline or anything. But I think he's such a such a steady humanizing force on this show, and especially in these episodes. I just wanted to give him a, a, a hat tip.
3: He's Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, because, again, I'm, I'm perhaps everybody in the audience has already put this together, but uh, but Warren Frost is Mark Frost's father, um, who, who, you know, the main writer here. Uh, Warren Frost is his father. He'd been a theater teacher, I believe, for a long time. Like, he'd acted off and on, but at this point, when they started the television show, he was teaching theater in... Something like Michigan or something. And in fact, uh, sort of had, had known and maybe not, I think he had taught, but just knew through his work at this school, knew people like Chris Mulkey, who was cast as Hank. So there's all, there's this sort of like connection where Warren Frost had brought certain people and been connected to certain people. And I think some writers as well into the show through his father's work as a kind of theater teacher. Um, but I think, but I think you're right. I think Warren Frost is, is a very warm presence and, and he often sort of gets very sort of just nice little quiet touches of humor. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to love him. Like he yells out of the background at one point, whoever heard of a diet lasagna? I mean, he's, you know, he's a great, (laughs) (laughs) some great lines.
1: (laughs) I teased this earlier, but I I feel like I just need to get, get it out of the way now. Albert's speech about nonviolence, which I'm going to play for you now, is one of my very favorite moments of the entire show even though I think it's kind of a a fascinating study in contradictions. Anyway, let's, let's hear that real quick.
2: While I will admit to a certain cynicism, the fact is that I'm a naysayer and hatchet man in the fight against violence. I pride myself in taking a punch and I'll gladly take another because I choose to live my life in the company of Gandhi and King. My concerns are global. I reject absolutely revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method... ...is love. I love you, Sheriff Truman.
1: What I find most interesting about Albert's speech, besides the fact that Miguel Ferrer is just an amazing actor, and just the, the pivot from, from what we previously understood of Albert is so profound and wonderful and hilarious, it, it really it, it brings to my mind the fact that this show's like, version of law enforcement and government is so weird and idyllic and like it's you know it's almost as if you know, like you know when Albert's talking about walking in the footsteps of King it's like dude you work for the organization that tried to like neg him and do a lonely suicide like what universe do you inhabit and then we see it again actually in the next episode when we when we have the judge character who happens to be a bit of a mystic like Cooper uh well we can talk about that scene later and again, I'm just reminded of the show's very strange take and and an idyllic take on on law enforcement.
3: It almost ends up reading as an equivalent level of fantasy to the kind of level of of this sort of you know background world that is created in Twin Peaks with giants and mm-hmm. uh, dwarves and everything. I mean, it, it's the the yeah, it's like this idea that that the Federal Bureau of Investigation and judges and uh, investigators and sheriffs would be operating at such a... I mean, I, pure is the wrong word, because certainly, like, these these men... I mean, again, we should say they're all men. The men tend to get sort of bogged down in kind of earthly issues, but at the same time, there's such a level of unbelievable kind of striving for nobility and striving to do justice to an idea of the law. Like, the idea of the law as being something that one could still devote oneself to, which is such a... Um, in a lot of ways, not a modern concept at all, right? I mean, that's a very, uh, yeah, to us, it seems almost otherworldly that the law would be this thing that one would devote one's life to and kind of live as if it was almost a religious order. I mean, it's, yeah, it's fantastical, really.
2: Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, it seems to be less about law enforcement and more about the kind of um, the detective aspect that, you know, the investigation um work that that law enforcement does is what seems to interest Lynch the most in a way that he kind of sees it as like you said a very noble it's a it's a noble act to kind of um to look for truth and to kind of um follow follow leads and try to you know get get to the greater truths of existence you know this is what all human beings do and so mm-hmm. Yeah, the the way that you know law enforcement or detectives kind of appear in Lynch's work are as these, you know, um, they're they're taking on a task for for us, for all of us humans, and kind yeah. of right um, following this. Yeah, like we're all looking for the mysteries of existence, and so this is just a way to kind of yeah, a place to explore that on another level.
1: Right. You know, I guess there's there's never like that I can think of. There's never been like a dirty cop. You know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of criminals and a lot of cops, but there's never been a dirty cop there's and it, i I think that you know when people talk about Lynch's sense of naivete which I think might be overstated in some senses, I think maybe one of the few places where that might apply is is in this realm where he's sort of deliberately creating oh. his own version of of what he thinks law enforcement should be like. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's tricky because, like, we we sort of talked about that a little. I think last uh, with the episodes in the first season, there this idea that sometimes the show plays a little fast and loose with with its idea of the law, right? I mean, you have Coop and, and Sheriff. Like, the Bookhouse Boys are a vaguely, you know, it's a tr- bit of a troubling concept. Like this idea that they sort of seem to have a group that operates outside the law for when they need to do things that the law doesn't allow them to do, and yet. Um, the show still mostly manages to maintain this idea that they are that they are devoted to a kind of ultimate law that somehow supersedes the right, the daily yeah. banal uh, problems of the of living the law, which again, I think is is quite interestingly framed in. Uh, the next episode scene, and I, I don't want to skip ahead too much, but just to say that the, the judge that shows up in the next scene has this great speech where he, uh, he talks about the idea that the law the law gives us purpose, the law gives us a, a guide that helps us through the difficult times in our lives, but it also requires a certain form of submission to this arbitrary and... and um, I don't know what the word is, like a system that extends beyond us and has no time for, you know, the, the woes of individual lives. I mean, the law both helps and it and it requires a certain kind of giving up of one's freedom. And I think the show is is good at, at walking that line. I mean, I think it's interesting what it does with it, at least. Yeah.
2: There's that scene in the boardroom and you see the the kind of the, the board, you know, like the chalkboard with yeah. like everything laid out, which is, you know, a pretty, like, standard image from, like, most, like, police procedurals, um, you know, where you have, like, all the suspects and, like, all the arrows that are linking them up. And, uh, yeah, so it's it's all about, yeah, Bob and people who have seen him in reality oh, yeah. or, in their, or in their dreams. And it's treated with, like, equal weight. And so it's, this kind of speaks to, yeah, the way Cooper's approach to the law is very, very different than, Oh, my gosh. I'm forgetting his name. We just heard his clip.
3: Oh, Ro- Rosenfeld? Uh, Rosenfeld? Yes. Rosenflower? Albert Rosenfeld? Yeah. Rosenflower? Rosenflower. Rosenfeld. Yep. Yeah. So, you know,
2: Albert's got a very different way of, of investigating, a different way of looking at the law than, than Cooper does. And they both exist in tandem. So, yeah, yeah I think that that ambiguity and subtlety is there.
3: I just wanted to add for you, for you to bring come back to that scene, Simon, because we haven't actually gotten to talk about it that much yet, but the scene with, with Albert, I think um, it's just... The sh- I think this is one of those moments where... You could say that this move that they make with Albert here, where he is all of a sudden espousing a kind of, um, idea of nonviolence, it, you know, you could make an argument that it, it actually kind of contradicts some stuff that happens in the first season. Because Albert, like, grabs Sheriff Truman by the lapels in one of the early episodes and looks like he's gonna hit him. Like, it's not, you know, there, there are some kind of questionable links there. But I think that it, it ends up working really well, mostly because you have a coop has sort of been on Albert's side the whole time, right? I mean, Coop kind of calls him to task a couple of times for for misbehaving, but Coop has also gone to bat with the audience and with the other characters saying, Albert is this great guy, he's this great sort of uh, officer, and we we never really see where that comes from until you get to this moment, and again, it's this level of I think uh, what Serge just pointed out that that Rosenfeld has has investigated things quite differently, and he's always much more of this sort of like rational uh, empiricist kind of way of of approaching the world, and yet he does have an, an ethos, right? He does seem to have a kind of set of beliefs that are not just about cold hard truth like the truth is very much wrapped up still in an understanding of treating people a certain way and like living one's life a certain way which brings him up very much to the level of somebody like Coop which is great um but sorry I cut you off Simon
1: oh I was just gonna say my counter reading of the Albert scene that occurred to me this time is that he's he's really figured out how to live because he spends all of his time pissing people off and having a great time and then just as things are about to get physical oh no 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 no. I espouse nonviolence, I'm I'm going to de-escalate, I'm I'm just going to cut this off at the knees, and you're going to like me now.
3: Yes, very true. He is a smart, smart man.
1: (laughs) Uh, Can I tell you guys my favorite besides that line reading of this first episode? Sure. Sometimes I think I should just get on my bike and go. (laughs) Is that James? That is definitely James. (laughs) Saying what we're all thinking.
3: (laughs) Saying what we're all hoping (laughs) um yeah because we have like a lot of maddie and james and donna the intrigue the intrigue continues here uh so where do you stand on the james uh the james versus leo uh debate sarah do you have a different actor that you liked less or which of those is your
2: (laughs) uh oh yeah james is but he's yeah he's terrible but he's just so he's great at the same time like i love Okay, there's so many, like, scenes where poor Donna keeps, like, walking in on, you know, uh, James and Maddie, sort of, like, in, you know, uh, in situ, I guess, or whatever. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there's, like, that one scene at um, at the Palmers where, yeah, he, he freaks out and throws the lamp, and then he, like, runs out after her, chases her as she's, like, peeling off in the van, and he's just like... Donna, why? Why? Why?
3: It's It's, it's one of the worst line rings on the show. Like, Uh, But I just, I
2: love it. I love it. Yeah. It's great. It's so over the top and yeah, but he's so annoying. Yeah. He's very annoying, but, uh, I I don't know. I kind of like him.
1: I was really missing Bobby in these episodes. Oh God, it's
3: true. There was like no Bobby. No Bobby. Yeah. Oh wow. I got, God, I didn't even, maybe he had something else he had to film or something. Uh, that week he was away. And yeah, there was very little Shelley, too. We get sort of just one or two scenes with Shelley. Um, I think at this point we're starting to uh, add new characters to the cast, which maybe takes time away from the characters that we love and want to spend time with, and, and we can keep talking about that. But um, I did want to, that scene that you just mentioned, Zara, where, uh, yeah, uh, James... Rushes over to Donna's house, or rushes over to Maddie's house, uh, and then they're sort of hugging or kissing or whatever, and Donna comes across them, and that sequence, I found it so bizarrely, like, staged that it stands out in my memory, like the fact that, um, James Donna comes in, Donna runs out, James runs after Donna, like knocks the lamp over, runs after Donna, and then at the exact same moment, Leland like stumbles into the hallway, like off from off camera stumbles in past James as if he's been like running from some other part of the house. Like it just, the whole thing doesn't make much sense spatially, and um, I, I don't know. I, for me, it's like there, I would say I think just overall, because we haven't really talked about the overall quality of this episode at all. But the this episode directed by Leslie Linka Glatter, I think again, like she's a really strong director, and I think this is of the two we're talking about this week, the stronger episode. Um, but I would say there's maybe certainly less a kind of. Uh, interesting handle stylistically on things here than you than we saw the last time she directed an episode where we have those kind of amazing like choreographed shots moving between different parts of the diner and we just don't get as much of that in this episode it it feels like there's maybe a lot more plot a lot more writing maybe more pages of dialogue that they sort of have to get in because you don't yeah, there just isn't as much space to breathe. And it's really noticeable coming off of a week, the last two weeks with Lynch directing where, again, every scene is given such space to breathe. They really feel like these set pieces in and of themselves. And here, it feels like we're very, we're very much back to that sort of pace of, you no, know, we're in episode, we're in sequences where it's two characters meeting with each other. Where we get some information. We talk, we talk, we talk. Then we cut to the next thing. And it's two characters talking. And it's, it, it's a very different set of, um, yeah, sense of like spatial development in these sequences.
2: In some ways, it works, though, because there are so many, like, awkward intrusions in this entire episode. Like, yeah, that whole scene at the Palmers where, yeah, like, Donna leaves and then James chases after her. Then Leland comes in. They have, he has that scene on the couch with Maddie. And then suddenly it's, like,
3: yeah,
2: Cooper and uh, Harry are there, like, just, like, immediately, like, just right there. Like, the, the door was open. And so they didn't knock, you know? It's kind of like they're just suddenly there, um...
3: I think that's a that's a great moment in this sequence. I that's a great moment. I love that that cut back to Cooper and uh, and Truman just standing over them from the low angle. It's it's beautifully done because it's again, yeah, that switch of a kind of from a very caring sort of happy mode to all of a sudden this like reality crashing back in. Yeah.
1: The only thing I would say to counter the the pacing issue of this episode is is that we do have this scene that I gather people are quite divided on, and it is in this first episode, right? Donna at the graveyard.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which actually works, like for it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it I, works for I, I kinda me. Yeah, I kind of like that one. What do you think, Sarah?
2: Yeah, no, I liked it too. I just, it reminded me of like an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something <laughs> like that. Like, I, uh, <laughs> but I, I thought, you know, I mean, Donna, it's really hard to act with a headstone. Um, <laughs> yes. But I think, you know, she, she had, I think what she said, the kinds of things that she said, I think were really important, um, you know, about Laura's problems still like yeah. continuing on even though she's dead you know kind of getting at the the larger issue that it's not just her problem but a kind of
1: uh
2: a community problem
1: i would like to point out for listener posterity that sarah has a giant buffy the vampire slayer poster behind her head <laughs> that actually her your head lines up perfectly with the heads in the posters i don't know if you can see that it's true but um, sarah's
3: sarah's starring and once more with feeling yeah. in this poster and it's great
1: but um, i i totally yeah. agree with sarah about like it's, it's been, what, 11, 12 episodes, and it's been mostly people, you know, mooning over the fact that Laura's gone, and it, it's, it's, it's great to finally see someone be like, you know what, you were kind of the worst, and I hate this. <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> it's kind of nice to have, even like, it's obviously not the, maybe the most graceful or easy staging of that, uh, you know, the way, you know, way to do that, of you know, having someone literally like yelling at a gravestone, but hey, it works for me.
3: Yeah, there was also I think yeah I guess right around this time in this scene, we, a sequence we get um, Maddie starting to complain to to Leland saying, "I don't like this. Everybody treating me like I'm Laura." Like, and and it's that's an interesting dynamic, right? Like this idea of a of a niece complaining to the uncle who's just lost his daughter, saying, "I'm I don't want. I'm tired of everybody thinking that I'm your daughter." Like, it's a that's a very strange uh dynamic and i think it plays into this again this sort of um yeah sense that maybe the show is pushing back a little bit on any kind of easy uh i don't know what how to describe it like any kind of easy honor or something just given to laura's image all the time yeah
1: i do think that one obvious weakness of these episodes i mean we've already mentioned the fact that there's no bobby and shelly which i think is really felt uh i also feel the absence of audrey and by that i mean conscious audrey uh because yeah. conscious audrey is awesome and drug-addled Audrey is boring and creepy.
3: <laughs> Candy, Candy's dandy, baby. Oh my god, those sequences are. Yeah, the, the sequences with poor, drugged-out Audrey are a little uh, much? unsettling. <laughs> yeah, a little much, um, and they really slow down the narrative too. Like it's really, it's just very. I mean, we, what we're four episodes in here, and Audrey is up at the One Eye Jacks, and you know we keep going back for scenes of it. But it's and and I get it, right? I mean, they're they they need to kind of dole out the the event and what's happening in these first few episodes, and soon we get the end of this on uh, One Eye Jack sequence uh, storyline. But uh, yeah, it's not my favorite stuff—the stuff with uh, Jean Renault and Audrey up at the casino.
2: Yeah, I think there's also a lot of, but there's. It, it kind of fits like thematically, I think like there's a lot of, yeah, with Audrey sort of in captivity. Well, not sort of like actually in captivity. <laughs> uh, and then you've got, um, uh, super Nadine who's kind oh, of like <laughs> strapped to the hospital bed. And then you have also, I guess the introduction of Harold Smith, who is, you know, the shut in who's yeah, sort of chosen captivity, a life of captivity. Um, yeah, there's a kind of, mm-hmm. there's a symmetry to it. I think, um, which, yeah, I have more to say on that later, but yeah, yeah that's it's interesting it's, yeah. it's not always there to kind of like service a, a plot necessarily I don't.
3: it's true, it's true, um I mean, I think uh maybe it's just sort of as Simon says, just kind of a bummer, like this character who was such like she was such a sort of life force in the first season, right, I mean, she really is given such a sense of kind of um she's off on her own and she's always sort of figuring things out and like every sequence Sherilyn Fenn is in is fantastic. And then she's basically been neutralized like for these sort of last two, three episodes, which is kind of, um, yeah, just sort of like, ah, but we want her back, you know, like there's, so I, I, that's, I think more what I mean is I just kind of miss her as a presence, but, uh. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, and, uh, is it, is it Blackie? Is that what the madam's name? Okay. Yeah. So she's kind of also talking about how, yeah, she says a little aside about this is what, you know, Ben, Ben Horn had done to her. And so this mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. recur- recursiveness of like this terrible behavior, a kind of cycle, too, that I, is important to kind of note. Um
3: yeah, and I think also like this idea of the kind of um, I think I forget who was on our show. Maybe it was Matt earlier who was on the show who mentioned this, but this idea of the kind of mirroring, like the future mirroring of of what characters mm-hmm. might be like thirty years later. And I mean, I think there's a very real sense in which Blackie, you know, could be the kind of thirty like twenty five year later version of Audrey Horn. I mean, I think that is a is an interesting kind of pairing. Not to say anything bad against Audrey, but I think it's it's a very possible kind of. Um, um, idea maybe so there's I don't know there's something interesting there as well for sure mm-hmm.
1: uh, I'm glad you mentioned the Nadine sequence because that for me is the sequence that whiplashes from being amazing to being like a portend of terrible things to come because uh, Big Ed coming in and, and and having the room to himself with Nadine and singing the song is so lovely so sweet yeah and then <laughs> and then we get super Nadine <laughs> Who
3: yeah <sighs> oh, super nadine well we we're gonna have lots of time to talk about super <laughs> yes, Nadine I feel like yeah. we're gonna have many episodes to do that, and yeah. um yeah, I, I wanted to we didn't we haven't really talked about Harold Smith yet at all, either. Like, I was I gonna to bring him anymore. up now,
1: yeah, um because wh- I think it's oh go ahead, oh, all I was gonna say is that I find it really bizarre the the relationship between Donna and Harold Smith because. She's now adopting with all the people that she knows this like hyper tough new attitude, but then like she seems to kind of melt for Harold, who is you know kind of not entirely dissimilar from James, really? Mm, <laughs> like yeah. he's kind of, like he's not not exactly uh, not exactly like the, the, a Bobby style cool kid or anything. <laughs> He's also very, you know, sensitive. I'll be in, in a in a different way, and I also don't really remember, frankly, what happens with with Harold Smith or their relationship or anything or how I'm supposed to read these scenes. But I'm not really sure that I can square Donna with Harold versus Donna with everyone else.
2: Well, she seems to be. She responds well to him because, yeah, he is, you know, gentle and sensitive, but he's also very observant. Like he sees her. Yeah, you know what I mean. He he notices what she's wearing. He's Uh, He knows all these details about her from, you know, what he's heard from Laura and, you know, she feels kind of flattered and kind of special, I think. Um, You know, this idea that he's just, he's inside like looking out all the time and kind of uh, having, you know, like devoting all this attention to, um, you know, her life and what's going on in her life. It's, yeah, it kind of maybe, yeah, it makes her, she's supposed to be a teenager after all, Mm -hmm, Um, you know, sort of self-involved and wanting to feel... Um, Yeah, more important and have someone give some legitimacy to her, um, her identity and like her problems and her, her desires. So I think that is something that comes out in that relationship. But yeah, it's still very early and hard to tell.
1: To play devil's advocate against my own argument, I think there might be something to the idea that it's just something it's just new stimuli. And I, I think when you when you're young, that's kind of exciting. And it's just someone who is so different from her sort of peer group and is is just lives such a different life and, and perceives life so differently would be theoretically refreshing. Uh, so, yeah, maybe I'm just full of crap.
3: Well, yeah, I was going to say something similar, which is I just I think there's maybe something to... Uh, like I think Jessica talked about this last week. This idea of of many of these episodes here, you get a kind of series of ways in which these girls who are all—I mean, I think Audrey had said that she was eighteen, so I think they're—I think they're all supposed to be eighteen because Laura was seventeen when she was killed, I believe. So anyway, they're sort of supposed to be in that age range. But yes, this idea that they're all kind of trying on, um, yeah, like a relationship to sexuality as a way to express or kind of hold a certain kind of adulthood—that like this is what's made available to them in order to in order to take control of, of their sense of adulthood and I think I don't know I get the sense that Harold I think for Donna is maybe it maybe works as as the idea that he is perceived as one step closer to that or something than somebody like James where James is very much I you know like as much as he's supposed to be the bad boy he's sort of like a 13 year old's understanding of what a bad boy is right like somebody with a leather jacket and a motorcycle but and and we're also at some point, yes, given this idea that, that James has a kind of complicated backstory with his mother and, and the mother's alcoholism, which has never developed really at all in, in James' character or anything. But um yeah, this idea that Dawn is sort of maybe moving beyond one kind of narrative of what is what is a very chaste uh, relationship with James, like sort of standing in for an idea of badness into something that that is genuinely I don't know, mysterious and kind of beyond her ability to make sense of it. I think there's Mm -hmm. there's clearly supposed to be a sort of ramping up there. Um, You know, you open the door and there is uh, uh, the older brother of Cam from Ferris Bueller's Day Off and his straps there, and it's like, how could you not be like, yes, please, I'm in love with
0: you, (laughs) right? Yeah, because she,
1: I guess, you know, in James, you have this very performative, uh, you know, um, visual, you know, visually performative uh, version of of counterculture bad boyness or whatever. And then in in Harold, you have someone who actually has shunned society, like genu- like yeah. he he really lives it uh, for better or worse, and it's uh it's it's definitely a, a total one eighty.
3: Does anybody did anybody else find the Harold Smith character strange in terms of the presentation of of sexuality, like in in terms of mm-hmm. the presentation of like? For me, I mean, the first time I saw the show, I was unclear if we were supposed to read him as gay or not like I I think that's a really I think that's an interesting question because I don't think the show I don't know I mean there, there are no obviously no gay characters in the show this is sort of before having gay characters on television was a kind of thing even though obviously many actors and many characters have been you know whatever but it's so I, I don't know I found that kind of strange that this is what the show's uh, I don't know. The show is walking some interesting line there around um, a performance style and a kind of like mode that is plays as as a certain coding of effeminacy that is maybe meant to read as as like on the borderline of a certain kind of relationship to sexuality. But I, I don't know. I that's just always something I've wondered, I've thought about that those sequences.
2: Yeah, it's definitely ambiguous, and that could also be like a a result of all of the orchids um, <laughs> yeah. and the uh, <laughs> and I just. Yeah, you know, this. I couldn't help but thinking about, yeah, the way it was like Zizek talks about like, you know, flowers being like plant vaginas. Like they're they're very, um, <laughs> you know, like that's all I could think about. It's just, it's all of these orchids everywhere. You know, there's like that image where, you know, Donna's like sees the, the red orchid and like reaches out and like starts stroking the petals. Like it's all very like, you know, vaginal and kind of labial and, and yeah, there's the pinks and the, I, I don't know. I just felt very much, um, yeah, there's a, a feminine association with that space that kind of, you know, it's hot. It's like a greenhouse. Yeah. It's like very abundant and fertile and yeah. And then he's there and he's also, yeah, just the casting of him. He, he's, yeah. he is very, um, you know, kind of elfin and kind of self spoken yeah. and you know, uh, moves very quietly and uh, delicately.
1: Sarah, could you repeat the, the phrase plant vaginas, but could you uh, snort and, and shout while doing it so we can get the full, <laughs> the full Zizek effect? You don't actually have to do that.
3: <laughs> For anybody who doesn't know, look up a video of Slavoj Zizek talking and that, that joke will make sense then. There's always
2: lots of spitting and yeah, he's he's disgusted by flowers because they, yeah, they're plant vaginas.
1: My relationship towards
0: tulips is inherently lynch I think they are disgusting. Just imagine aren't these some kind of how do you call it vagina dentata dental vagina threatening to swallow you I think that the that, that flowers are something inherently
1: disgusting I mean are people aware what a horrible thing
2: But you know I think they're they're quite lovely. <laughs> it's a matter of perspective, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: very true.
1: Um, Uh, I I don't want to read too much into Zizek and his opinions of vaginas, but um, I do wonder if there's anything else specific we have to say about this first episode before we, uh, I guess, more more specifically target uh, Laura's secret diary.
3: Uh, I do think we need to give, um, two shout outs. There was two scenes that I thought were, were worth mentioning. One was, uh, Jacoby's hypnotism sequence mm. that involves Cooper reading out the description of a short putting golf game, which is, I mean, genius. Like, I'm not sure what's going on there, if that's like Frost, and Frost didn't write that episode, but somebody has a really good sense of how to write Jacoby. Like, he is just such a distinctive character, and there's such, perfect kind of moments with him and that that golf game hypnotism bit is is pretty genius uh that was one um the other one that I really liked and I think it's it gives portends of some of the the we're going to get some later scenes that I think work really well in relation to the kind of Bob thing and you get a kind of early version of that when you have Leland arrive at the sheriff station early in the episode and and talk to Truman and Cooper and say with the poster, like, I know this man. I know who uh, Bob is. And he describes this relationship of him being at Pearl Lakes. And he, he does that thing where he says, he used to flick matches at me and say, do you want to play with fire, little boy? Uh, which is something, obviously, James has said earlier. He said that Laura said that earlier in the last season. But he, he flicks the match through the air and it lands perfectly in the um, ashtray. Mm-hmm. I, I find something very... Like, there's just something very uncanny about that sequence. And there's no kind of, like, overt sort of strong stylistic effects or something. It's just one of those strange moments that there were some, some flag is sent up in terms of the kind of effective quality of it. And I, I think it was great.
1: I, it made me, it reminded me of the sequence of major Briggs flicking a cigarette. Uh, yeah. Into the cake. I, what the connection is, I couldn't possibly say, but it did make me think of it.
2: Well, that's often how everything seems to work in the twin peaks universe. There's all of these sort of just like formal kind of callbacks, like a kind of, yeah, just to go back. Like, yeah, they may not have any meaning necessarily, but just like a repetition, like a kind of like obsessive repetition, but just like a repetition, like a kind of like obsessive repetition, but just like a repetition, like a kind of like obsessive repetition, but just like a repetition, like a kind of like obsessive repetition. Um there was also the the scene, the one armed man in the bathroom.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: That's a great scene I thought was very very disturbing.
3: Without chemicals, he points, yeah. <laughs>
2: And yeah, again the callback to the syringe because you've got you know the syringe, at one-eyed Jacks, and um, yeah at the beginning right, Renette uh, pulled out her um, her saline drip or her yes. IV whatever. Yeah. So there's there's that, and yeah, weird things happening in bathrooms. Who mm-hmm. knew?
0: <laughs> oh,
3: I find that that sequence with Ronette where you get the close-up of the fingernail with this the the letters and put on the fingernail that is one of those moments where you get that is a an unpleasant sequence I mean we actually we didn't get to talk about it last week because there was so much to talk about with the um, two Lynch directed episodes but the fingernails thing in this episode ends up being I think kind of a holdover or a flashback to something that is such a trademark of Lynch's which is a real fascination with the kind of um yeah like the bodily qualities of things like this sort of like organic decay um, I mean the joke in the previous two episodes is the hospital food right this like gloopy hospital food where every time you get to the hospital food there's like bubbling on the soundtrack like bleep, 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 bleep. like it's so disgusting but um, but Lynch then quickly you know it's like on one hand a joke and then on the other hand he manages to make it into such a kind of horrific sort of space very quickly and I, I think yeah even just that very short shot to the fingernail here where they're taking the um, letter up from under Ronette's fingernail you get kind of a whole universe Universe of of pain and unpleasantness mm. in it, which is worth remarking
1: on. Yeah, I th- I find it interesting that they chose Nails and sort of Under Nails as, as a focus on this show because, you know, this is a network TV show in the early 90s, and there's only so much graphic violence and torture you can get away with, and I feel like Under Nails <laughs> was like kind of the worst thing they could get away with. That's like, there's nothing... You know, no censor could say, oh, nails are off limits because, oh, they're just nails. But it is really awful. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And also, we should thank the fact that, you know, this aired on TV in the early 90s for the fact that the Audrey stuff doesn't get a lot worse than it is.
2: Just some girl funked up riding the white tiger or whatever (laughs) I think it's like. Yeah. (laughs) There's how it's described in the episode. Uh, Anyway.
3: Well, that's one of those things where, for example, like you hear about Audrey being hit, but you don't see Audrey being hit. And mm-hmm. I feel like on television now you would see Audrey being hit. So there's, yeah, I don't know, definitely some differences there. Mm-hmm.
1: So if we're going to be talking about Laura's Secret Diary, uh, which we are, I wanted to uh, start off not by talking about the episode right away, but I, I wanted to play a clip. Uh, a-, a little while ago, they finally released an audiobook book of uh, The Secret Diary of La- Laura Palmer, read by Cheryl Lee. And I wanted to quickly play a clip uh, from when Laura is, I believe, 12 years old. And uh, it's it's not pleasant, but you're going to get to hear it anyway. So let's do that.
0: July 29th, 1984. Dear Diary, here's a poem. From the light in my window, he can see into me. But I cannot see him until he is close breathing, with a smile at my window. He comes to take me, turn me round and round. Come out and play, come play. Lie still, lie still, lie still. Little rhymes and little songs, pieces of the forest in my hair and clothes. Sometimes I see him near me, When I know he can't be there, sometimes I feel him near me, and I know it is something just to bear. When I call out, no one can hear me. When I whisper, he thinks the message is for him only. My little voice inside my throat. I always think there must be something that I've done, or something I can do, but no one, no one comes to help, he says, a little girl like you.
1: Having gotten that out of the way, I guess we should start by talking about uh, Todd Holland's opening for this episode, which is... You know, there's a lot of discussion when people talk about the show, and as, as we have discussed, you know, directors who are not Lynch trying on Lynchian effects, and here we open with Todd Holland's, like, deep, deep uh, pan out from a ceiling tile, to, to what turns out to be a ceiling tile, but could be an intestine, for all we know, when it's first starting, and then finally out to, uh, to Leland's horrible face, which I actually thought was one of the better Lynch-aping openings, to be honest.
3: It's the one where over like on the soundtrack, it's the the words are kind of saying like "Maddie, Maddie," right, over and over again. I believe so. Uh, yes,
2: yeah, because it, but it's also like there's like that that sort of Lynchian droning,
3: yeah, yeah. and then
2: there's also the beeping of yeah. like from the the life, su- or life the support, life heartbeat yeah. machine, whatever that yeah. thing is. Um, yeah, because it's like Leland sort of like back at the scene of when he killed Jacques, right? So that yes, but there's also a nice. Again, like symmetry, with that that be- the beginning of this episode and the beginning of the last episode, right, where you have um, Ronette's like empty hospital bed and the way the camera kind of does this like spiraling like pan around. Uh, there's a yeah, a repetition of that kind of like circling in the opening of this episode with the yeah, the hole in the ceiling tile.
0: Yeah,
3: I, I yeah, I think that I I, I would agree with you, Sam, that I think this um, that effect is is one of the ones that does work better. Like, it, it feels very... Um, yeah, it feels like it's sort of coming out of a kind of space of an emotional logic of the show, right? Whereas some sometimes those effects don't always seem to come from that space. But, uh, yeah, there's something interesting, this idea of the ceiling. It also, to me, it always is read as a telephone. Like, I always forget that it's a ceiling tile. I always think it's uh, instead one of the parts of the mouthpiece of a telephone, which works as well for Lynch because Lynch quite regularly manages to get in close-ups of telephones and kind of like a electronic sort of equipment as part of his thing so um i don't know there's something there but yeah this idea of like you know if anybody who's been in that kind of space something you're in some awful kind of headspace or you're in some strange thing like you're in a hospital or something and you're looking at the ceiling tile as if it's like the most important thing that's ever happened i mean i think there is something interesting there with leland and yeah this sort of awful development right like we already knew that leland killed uh jacques but that now this has become kind of part of the reality of the show and the fact that everybody has to deal with so yeah
2: yeah. And the idea that it's yeah, it's, it's focusing on like a tunnel, like one one hole and then it sort of um, zooms out to reveal. Yeah. All these holes. So there's the idea that, oh, the fabric of reality is, you know, there's it's full of holes now. Um, oh, that's interesting. So just
1: yeah. It. Uh, yeah. Not a good episode for typophobes. Yeah. Um,
3: And Ray Ray Wise is so heartbreaking in that that opening monologue bit there. It's the, the range that he manages to cover in a kind of, you know, it's not even that long of a speech. Like it's only maybe one to two minutes long, but yeah, the level of sort of emotional registers that he moves through is... You understand where Doc Hayward is coming from at the end of the at the end of the scene when he says um, no one should have to bury their own child. And, like, you understand he's killed somebody, so it's a very complex kind of position. But it's uh, – anyway, mm-hmm. yes. Go ahead, Sam. Um,
1: I think what this episode does really probably better than anything else this episode does is it really – it cements the tragedy of Leland uh, so well because you finally get a sense of what Leland was probably like before this all happened, which we never really got before. Like, we only got a few scenes, like one or two scenes with him before he finds out that Laura's dead. And, you you know, you get a sense from his speech where, you know, he's talking about representing himself and he seems genuinely lucid for the, maybe the first time in the entire show and at this horrible juncture. And then you also get these reminiscences from Hayward and the judge about what kind of a man they know Leland to be. And... Uh which is interesting when you consider that he's business partners with Ben Horn, but anyway, how much we can trust that, who can really say, but uh it still does feel like we get the we really understand the tragic dimension of, of Leland's character for the first time
3: and that's gonna pick up more and more in the next few episodes, but certainly we'll have the beginning of it here. There's also something interesting, one of my favorite aspects of this episode is is the kind of framing structuring device of the rain. Like the the fact that there's this storm that sort of picks up midway through the episode and kind of continues. And Todd Holland has sort of talked about having this idea as as a way to frame the episode. And um, I think apparently he sort of noted, he was like, you know, it hasn't rained in Twin Peaks since the pilot, which again is one of those sort of obvious things when you think like, oh, okay, well it was filmed in the Pacific Northwest and then they moved to LA. So of course it hasn't rained since the pilot. But um, I mean, even just a little touch like that, I think is is... Impressive for the sense of place, but then the way that he's able to use it to to both, um, I think, really make you feel the time of the episode. Like it, it, it really does start to bring the sequences together in a way that I think has a different quality than that, um, you know, almost soap opera structure of you move from one scene with two characters to another scene with two characters to another. This doesn't really feel like that. Instead, it really does start to feel like a kind of, um, yeah, there's a, a like an atmospheric pressure almost building up in the episode that. Uh, I, I'm gonna forget exactly how the episode works towards the end, but there's kind of a whole series of big, big things, part of which is this judge arriving from outside of town to make his his pronouncement about Leland, which, is another one of my favorite sequences. I mean, I don't know if, if, yeah, but it's, it's hard not to love him as a character, except for the part where he talks to Coop about, no, he talks to Truman about women problems and says, well, if they won't take the saddle, I have two other, that makes me want to barf. But, uh, other than that, I, the judge character is, is hard not to love when he gives that speech to Leland about, um, you know, once this once the veil of appearances has passed and, and the law has left us, then we will drink again in Valhalla. It's like I mean, that's the judge everybody wants, right? Like how could you not like <laughs> this is the ideal version of the law? If you're ever stuck before the law, that is the judge that you would want.
1: That's definitely the guy I want at my murder trial. <laughs> as much as I love that sequence, uh there's a lot in this episode that I'm not wild about that I I oh, yeah. I, I must confess. I mean, obviously, uh, the wackiness with the uh, theoretical food critic is, like, I guess one way to tie things M.T.
2: Wens.
3: <laughs> M.T. Wens. Yeah. One of the more annoying, like, made-up names, too. But it gets in your head, and then you can't get rid of it. <laughs> M.T. Wens, M.T. Wens. Yeah. It's not helped by the fact that that actors like that the, the actress that they cast as the great northern hotel employee, the one who's like super enthusiastic about everything is is really quite aggravating and she sort of <laughs> makes the MT Wentz plotline even more aggravating. You're like, "Just chill out, girl." But anyway. <laughs> uh,
1: and of course we get we get the return of Josie and her not-so-great plotline, to be honest. Uh, this is maybe as good a time as any to mention that uh, I uh, I found out through you, Kate, that uh, Joan Chen has a has a filmmaking career that started after Twin Peaks ended. Uh, and I, I I had heard of her first film, uh, Juju the Sent-Down Girl, since I was, like, really young. It's supposed to be, like, this apparently a very good and legendarily depressing film. And of course, then she went on to make only one Hollywood film, uh, "Autumn in New York," which was sort of a notorious flop, as I understand it. Uh, but anyway, I thought that was sort of an interesting tidbit, considering how little agency she has on on this show as a or like interest she has as, as a character. It's it's interesting that she has this whole other career.
3: Yeah, Josie is a complicated character. I mean, I don't know because like, we've had we've had a couple of people. I think maybe already mentioned this. I do this problem with the idea that it's a very sort of Orientalist perspective on her. Like she becomes this exotic foreign object for all of the men to kind of ooh and all over and she has very little agency in the show. And I do think all of that is there. I mean... I, it's, I don't know. There's some interesting history there as well, because the character uh, was not originally written to be um, a Chinese woman. It was originally written to be an Italian woman who was going to be played by Isabella Rossellini, who um, Lynch was dating when Twin Peaks sort of went. It was still in the early stages, and then they broke up, and Rossellini did not want to be involved, I guess. but um, So I don't know. I mean, I, you sort of wonder like what if it was a chicken or egg thing, I mean, if it was that they cast Joan Chen and then the character goes in this direction, or if they just really never had a plan for that character and Joan Chen's casting just sort of happened to be part of that. Um, It really, you really do start to get the feeling here in these episodes, though, that they just did not have much to do with Josie. Like, they just weren't sure what to do with her, really. Um, I don't know. What do you you think about her, Sarah?
2: Yeah, I I think so as well. I would agree with everything that you said. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Like, there's not yeah she's sort of this exotic figure you know a woman from another place you know she's kind of like a stand-in for for that it seems like um there's not much kind of particularity to her character just that you know she likes shopping and she also has secrets she's
3: also constantly in her underwear like in a way that is is kind of like remarkable because it's even before this episode where you get her prancing around in front of hank and uh, what is clearly, like, you know, at this point, we're obviously meant to be reading this as a certain kind of, um, film, yeah, FM fatale kind of, like, she's in, she's using her wiles to control things. I mean, we're, we get that. But even before that, like, she's constantly, she's always answering the door in, like, negligees and underwear. And, like, she's just very, her clothing, exactly, her clothing is, like, basically falling off of her all of the time. Um, there's also something interesting, too, that I, I think maybe doesn't get talked about very much with Twin Peaks, but uh, there's something interesting about Josie and class as, like, a, as, a, as a question and a problem. I mean, this idea that, that basically everyone except Ben Horn really is sort of supposed to be kind of middle-class or lower-class like those are the two levels then you have Ben Horn as the kind of like corporate figure running the town and then you have Josie as this woman who's like clothing and relationship to class and elegance is very much meant to stand in for a certain kind of like worldliness and and um, yeah and an upper-classness and I I don't know I don't really know what to make of that yet but I guess it, I just wanted to point it out as something that's there. Yes. And we also
2: get the introduction of her brother in this episode as well. Yes. yes
3: yeah. And, yes. and Mr. Tojimura. Oh yeah. <laughs> there, there, there's another, maybe less than uh, less than defensible uh, use of um, Asian stereotypes is maybe it's not so great.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you can't win them all.
3: I know. Apparently not. Yeah.
1: Is there anything else we wanted to mention about this episode before we consider wrapping up? R.I.P. Emery?
3: Wait, uh, yeah, bye, Emery. Um, <laughs> good riddance. We're, we're not going to miss you. Uh, I I was going to say, I mean, I do think that um, I appreciate that we get Harold uh, in this episode, I think, reading from Laura's diary, right? Like, I, we, we get, like, an excerpt, which, you know, you just gave another excerpt from the actual kind of book that was sent out. But, um, I don't know. I think there's. I I kind of. I I wonder what it would have been like to be watching these episodes uh, in 1990. Maybe we were in 1991 at this point. Actually, I'm not sure, but 1990. Uh, having read Laura's secret diary over the summer, um, which I still haven't finished it. I've been. I'm so busy. I haven't had a chance to. I'm about. I don't know. A third. Uh, about a half of the way through it. And as I've hinted at before, like it is a difficult read. Which I, Simon, it seems like the clip that you played earlier reflected that. But it is. It is a difficult, difficult read, and it is really kind of a, a listing of all of these sort of brutalities inflicted on a child, effectively, for at, at length and in depth. Um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I still... We've talked about this before, but I would say as much as, as Laura... As much as the show is maybe starting to introduce these sides of Laura that are less than savory and that she maybe was like a problematic character, um, I still do think that the show is maintaining this idea that there is it is possible to have empathy for someone who is not a perfect person. And I think that there's interesting things going on with the relationship to the diary around that. So yeah, anyway.
1: these, uh, these episodes did air in October
3: of 1990, by the way, 1990. Okay. So we're still 1990.
2: Yes. Yeah. Cause, um, Harold reads the excerpt from the diary to Donna. Um, just like, yes, yeah, let me read you an excerpt. And then it, it turns out to be an excerpt that's about her and kind of makes her very uncomfortable. And then he's like, oh, I'm sorry, kind of. But he then also reveals that he's read it like back to back and he knows it very well. So it was a very uh, conscious, probably a conscious choice to read that particular excerpt to Donna. Um, and the way that, you know, he's using, I don't know, he's, yeah. And then he sort of reveals that he's, he feels like he's he's writing a, what are you, a, a tapestry, a living tapestry or a yeah, living, living novel, novel. or yeah. something like that about... Um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with this, but yeah, everyone's kind of fascinated with yeah getting inside of of Laura Palmer and being yeah. able, to, you know, control her or preemptively like save her from herself, even though it's too late, or yeah, to to figure out what went wrong or how. Yeah,
3: there's there's something there's something really interesting there. I hadn't thought of it that way until you put it that way, sir. But like, yeah, this idea of Harold is almost the kind of um, logical outcome of this sort of narrative that's been going on so so consistently with people wanting to own Laura's story and control it and keep track of it like this idea that her story has been deposited in someone else's uh like safekeeping and someone else's possession and 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 you get the sense in the if you if anyone's read the secret diary like part of this is because Laura has no Um, space of her own in her own home like she can't she can't hide anything she can't keep anything because Bob will find it and so this is part of why her story has to be kind of farmed out to be cared for by by Harold Smith because she has no space of her own and there's something really truly depressing in that, but um, I don't know. There's also something interesting about yeah, this idea of him as an observer and him kind of reflecting, uh, you know, the the our, the Twin Peaks audiences' um, desire for stories, our kind of fascination with this sort of collection of people's stories. I mean, he is another kind of structuring device that reflects the show itself. But, uh, there's some there's some good stuff with Harold.
1: I uh, I just had a vision of uh, Donna continuing to search Harold's apartment in the next episode. Uh this is brought on, Sarah, by you mentioning him choosing that excerpt and then she finds like a copy of the game or like some horrible pickup artist thing and she's
3: like, Oh no. He's actually the worst. <laughs> Anyway, uh, (laughs) the suspenders were all part of a ploy. And the Uh, monocle. Don't forget the monocle. Yes, it's true. And he's just, he is such a, I find it very weird that he's like one of the few characters that looks like he's from the 80s. I like there, it's like something where like the costume designer, like Lynch and Frost were off set the day they were like casting him and letting him keep that haircut that he has (laughs) and like putting him in those clothing because he really is one of the few people that stands out now going back to the show as someone who reads as 80s whereas like everybody else mostly is able to avoid that because they're kind of doing the timeless like 50s 50s 80s thing it gets out of that but anyway I just find that a weird thing about Harold and maybe we'll get that more like Dick Tremaine is a little is verging on that too I suppose but anyway and
1: you'd think he'd be the one truly timeless character having not left his house
3: we can talk about this later because I probably I want to kind of bone up on the backstory but the guy who played Dick Tremaine was actually a soap opera actor like he really was a very well-known soap opera yeah
2: he was in general hospital he was in the bold and the beautiful and days of our lives wow
3: well, i didn't, need, trifecta. I didn't even need to bone up sarah's here she knows all of this that's awesome
2: i know my stories <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh by the way just another tidbit that I found out that I that blew my mind talking about soap operas um, all of the stuff in the previous season which I don't think we've had we haven't had any Invitation to Love no this we season, haven't have we we haven't any and you know why that might have I think that was is because uh, when they were filming Invitation to Love before I think they had sort of grander plans to make it a kind of larger aspect of the show they weren't really able to get the funding and scheduling stuff for it so they filmed all of those things in one day in the Ennis house when they filmed all that Invitation to Love stuff they got everybody together like they were friends of mark frost frost directed them all and they filmed all of that in one day in the anna's house which i find kind of amazing but anyway so i i guess i'm not sure i can't we'll we'll keep an eye out if invitation to love comes back because i actually can't remember if they do that again this season but anyway
1: all right uh so that just about wraps things up for us uh if you do want to uh to find us on the internet uh i'm on twitter at hollow minds uh kate you're at cinnamon that's c-i-n-e-m-e-n-t yes and uh sarah do you a do you have social media b do you want to be reached (laughs) on it
2: uh sure um i'm on twitter uh i'm at feral ecologies uh, but i mostly just tweet about animals and media it was kind of associated with my dissertation stuff which i have kind of let go just for the time being while I, you know, watch
3: Twin Peak. By the way, uh uh Simon, we should have been calling Sarah Dr. Sarah Answan this whole Oy time because she snap. just finished her PhD and defended it. So yay. Well, because now I feel, a feel like a jerk. Yay.
2: Yeah. We have to re- we have to re record this like over again. <laughs> or okay. you call me doctor at every time. What Sorry. do you think about this, Doctor Sarah?
1: One second. Doctor just gonna Doctor. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna <laughs> insert that in like fifty times. Uh, all okay. right. Well, congratulations on your fantastically nerdy Twitter handle. And yeah. um, yes, do find uh, you can find past episodes on iTunes, and of course, do visit sortedcinema.com. dot uh, I got to write about The Americans last week, which I was very excited about, and uh, I'll I hope to do some more writing soon all about, about non Twin Peaks things. And uh, that's about it from us. We'll we'll be talking about two more episodes next week. Uh, we apologize for the schedule being slightly wonky. Uh, But we hope to get back on a regular thing uh, quite shortly. And uh, thank you all so much for listening.